0: There is this revolution going on and people are changing over from, you know, simple prescriptive bad medicine to more precision medicine, protocol-based medicine. And the sad thing is that it's not being taught in medical schools yet. And therefore, there are people dying left and right who are needlessly dying, including people with things like Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases.
1: Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today we are bringing back Dr. Dale Bredesen to the pod to discuss the first survivors of Alzheimer's. If you can believe it, of course, we all know cancer survivors and no one uh, really previously knew an Alzheimer's survivor and Dr. Bredesen and his protocol are back to discuss the first survivors of Alzheimer's. You may remember him, uh, in our previous two podcasts, we'll make sure that the show notes, uh, will link that out, but he is a medical doctor. Um, he's a professor, uh, the department of molecular and medical pharmacology at the David Geffen school of medicine at UCLA. Uh, he's the founding president and CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in California. And we are talking, as I mentioned, all about Alzheimer's. So we get into some of the resistance that Dr. Bredesen has really bumped up against in the medical uh, uh, world, in terms of people not believing that Alzheimer's can be reversed, that there has been pushback, that he has been uninvited to uh, to speak at uh, you know certain uh, universities, and we talk. We start off by talking about this medical revolution. Uh, in the book, he talks about the medical revolution, and it's on the human population more so than the french revolution more so than the nazi and or stalin uh the russian revolution and he correctly points out that the medical revolution is the bloodiest uh, revolution in history and there are we've set up an infrastructure in medicine that is non-objective for profit. You know, the research is done from non-objective for profit entities, uh, who have an interest in seeing a particular drug or intervention come to be widely accepted and used. And, you know, you might criticize in the era of 2021, um, there's also a layering of censorship on novel approaches, um, that really contrast the consensus. And so we talk about that and we talk about uh, some of the pushback that he's received. Um, but you know, the data doesn't lie. So in the trial that Dr. Bredesen just completed, 84% of the, uh, the participants got better, not just slowed the decline, but got better. And so we move into Alzheimer's uh, physiology. We start off with the amyloid precursor protein and then move on into the amyloid beta plaque formation, the different classifications of Alzheimer's, the inflammatory, non-inflammatory cortical Uh, vascular traumatic, the glycotoxic, and then we move into the quantified self. So this is a chapter in his book where we talk about energetics. So how glucose metabolism um, is stunted in the brain and how we might use alternative fuel like exogenous ketones uh, to be at least temporarily useful in Alzheimer's in the beginning. So we have this exogenous substrate and then moving into his recode protocol, being able to produce those endogenously. We then talk about insulin sensitivity, why this is very important when it comes to brain health. We talk about the interrelationships between seemingly unrelated diseases we talk about covid19 and Alzheimer's and even though one is a virus uh, and the other is a multi-factor uh, you know multivariant multifactorial disease we talk about some of the underlying similarities between them so hypertension and vascular disease uh, increased uh, those with increased tendency for blood clotting advanced age vitamin D deficiency deficiency of zinc uh, those with a genetic risk factor of apoE4 those those with weakened adaptive immune systems, all ex- you know, we can all expect poor outcomes from COVID-19, and of course, are all greater risk factors for Alzheimer's. And we also discuss metabolic health and uh, the outcomes in terms of COVID-19 and Alzheimer's. Of course, this has been met with lots of resistance and lots of censorship, but the you know the proof is in the pudding. Uh, what we know is that if you are metabolically unhealthy, your prognosis for any disease, any pathogen, is going to be poorer. But in this uh, particular instance, we talk about this in terms of COVID nineteen and Alzheimer's, and then we move into some of the stories that he talks about in the book. And there's a couple of favorites um, that I absolutely love. That I f- I fell in love with two uh, two uh, stories. One is Kristen; uh, pa- she's patient zero in the book, and then Deborah as well. And I love that he included these in the um, in the book because I found that. While we can talk about the mechanistic um, underlying factors of Alzheimer's, it's so important to also infuse hope. And these patients are an exemplary illustration of how we can not only slow down the, the decline, but in many cases, reverse it. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dale I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms, and here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. All right, Dr. Bredesen, it is so wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Number three, round three, and we're talking about your latest book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. Welcome, welcome back.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Estima. I'm feeling very pampered that I get to come on a third time. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're the only one.
1: You're the only one who's come on three times so far. Thank
0: Thank you. And congratulations on all your tremendous accomplishments and on your representation for empowered women. Very, very impressive.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And, um, we are talking all about brain health. This is, you know, as you, you know, as I've gotten to know you and you, me, this is part of my life's work is really helping people make better decisions for not only, um, you know, for their body. And of course we want to, we'll talk about muscle and all of that, but for healthy brain metabolism, healthy brain aging. And this is why I've been so drawn to your work. Um, and it's such an honor to speak to you today. And I wanted to start off this podcast. I want to start off our, our conversation with uh, a rather bold, potentially uh, outrageous question. Um, and that is and I'll say it's it's almost blasphemous in a way because from the outset um, of your work, you know, your studies and some of the results from your studies, which we're going to talk about today, um, there's been a whole lot of resistance. There's been a whole lot of pushback uh, for people really, even even letting into, like there's this cognitive dissonance around Alzheimer's being something that is optional. So my question, my question, my first question is, Is it truly possible to recover from Alzheimer's?
0: Absolutely, Um, and we've seen it again and again and documented it. We just had a recent clinical trial that was posted on MedArchive, so you can see it publicly available, um, and 84% of the people improved. Now, there's an important caveat here. The farther you get along, the harder it is, no surprise. And, And so one of the big problems that we've had is that what's been labeled mild cognitive impairment, MCI, and so the doctors will tell you, you know, it's just MCI, it's just mild cognitive impairment, you know, don't worry about it, come back next year. That's like telling someone that they had mildly metastatic cancer. It's a late stage. So there are four stages when you develop Alzheimer's. And the good news is there's a long period before you actually get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and that's been well documented. It's about 20 years between when you start the biochemical changes and when you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So in your first phase, you are asymptomatic. When you can already show by PET scan and spinal fluid, you've begun that process, which often happens in your 30s and 40s. That is a time when, you, when you're when you still asymptomatic. Then you go through the second phase, which is called SCI, Subjective Cognitive Impairment. And interestingly, one one expert claimed the other day said, um, SCI is just normal aging. No, it is not normal aging. There are sharp 90-year-olds, sharp 100-year-olds, as you well know, and the goal for all of us is to stay sharp uh, as long as we live. And so the second phase is Subjective Cognitive Impairment. And that actually lasts about 10 years on average. And those are from epidemiological studies. Now, by definition, you know there's something wrong. Often your spouse, maybe even your coworkers know things aren't quite right. But when you do formal testing, you're still testing within the normal range. Now, it may be because you started out as a genius and you've dropped down into the normal range. And indeed, we had one person who was a who had won his math competition for his entire state and had become a hedge fund manager and was relatively late stage Alzheimer's and went in and the neuropsychologist said, you're still scoring about average. And so you're fine. And, this, and the wife said, are you kidding? This guy was a genius. He's, he's not fine. So a little bit of the problem there is on the testing. You've got to do sensitive enough tests. But the good news is you have a huge window now, everybody asymptomatic. We don't have problems with prevention. People who are in SCI, virtually 100% of those people improve. It's relatively easy to do. The third of four stages is MCI. So in our trial, you had to have at least MCI or early Alzheimer's. So that was the area. So those are relatively advanced people. And 84% of those people, when they went through the protocol, scored higher on the follow-up tests. So MCI is not something where you say, yeah, go home and come back next year. Um, this is an emergency. This is a major problem. You've already gone through all those 10 years of having SCI. Something is 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 really wrong. Now you're scoring abnormally on tests. And then the fourth and final stage is called full Alzheimer's disease. And by definition, you've lost, begun to lose your activities of daily living. So that's the definition of full-on Alzheimer's. So again, we don't ever want anyone to get Alzheimer's. We don't want people to wait that long. But yes, we see some people. Now, we've seen people even with MOCA scores of zero, which is end stage, some of them improve, but when they improve, they don't improve all the way back to normal. They improve, now some of them start dressing themselves again or start speaking again, start interacting again, even start emailing again. But you do not, the the, the take home message here, you don't wanna wait. We've always been told there's nothing you can do, so don't bother to come in early. We have to flip that around. Please come in as early as possible, and preferably if you are 45 years of age or older, please get on active prevention. Do the appropriate testing. Find out. Just as we all know, when you turn fifty, you get what a colonoscopy. When you, if you're forty-five or over, please get a cognoscopy, because you can do some simple blood tests. And by the way, it's much more pleasant than a colonoscopy. Uh, much easier to do. So easy. You know, everybody should do this. The bottom line is nobody should get Alzheimer's. As I said in there, you know, it is really becoming optional. But of course, if you wait until the end stage. It's not the same, so please don't wait. And, of course, that's the same thing we say with cancer. Look what happened with pap smears. Look what happened with mammography. Look what happened with chest X-rays. People began to pick things up earlier, and things got better. What we're doing for Alzheimer's is no different. This is the pap smear for Alzheimer's. You're looking early. You're saying, what's actually driving the process? Please get on either prevention or early reversal, and then it's optional.
1: Well, I think that's a good tagline for the cognoscopy. This is the (laughs) pap smear for Alzheimer's. I think that's great. Um, But I also think just the, I think words matter. And when you have, when you call something mild, you know, mild cognitive impairment, this is in your, by your definition, in terms of the etiology of this disease, this is stage three of four, you know. If you could if you could rename these, would there be a renaming that you might consider? Yes. What would you call Very them? Very if-
0: good point. I would call MCI advanced stage Alzheimer's advanced? because it is a third of four and I would call Alzheimer's disease final stage Alzheimer's. And I would encourage people, SCI is early stage Alzheimer's. So I would encourage people, please get in when you have SCI that is, now it is true, people will say, well, not everyone, who has those complaints of SCI turns out to have early Alzheimer's, fine. It's, it's okay. If you go in and the doctor says, thank you, Stephanie, it turned out you didn't have early Alzheimer's after all. It's just deficiency of vitamin D, vitamin B12. you got a high hormone, you know, what have you. Great. Okay. That's not hurting you. But if you do have these earliest stages of Alzheimer's, you absolutely don't want to miss it. And again, this is just like screening, you want screening to be very sensitive even if it's not highly specific.
1: Yeah. And so what I, what I think is so interesting about this book and your work in general is when we look at some of the clinical trials, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, you know, pharmaceuticals, but almost every single, maybe there's been 300, maybe at this point, 400 clinical trials that have looked at one intervention. So they looked at trying to find some pharmaceutical agent to reduce, you know, whether it's the amyloid plaques or whatever intervention that they've tried to do. And for the most part, all of these trials have failed uh, or they have made the patients who've participated in the trial worse. And what I what I find so um, so, you know, there's a stark contrast between this uh, tendency in the pharmaceutical industrial complex to sort of look at the spider web and say let's just take a let's take the drug and we're going to just work on this little string of the spider web and see if it makes a difference versus when we look at recode and we look at the at the uh the programmatics uh that you've really designed around Alzheimer's, it's really more of a holistic approach and you're looking at it as a whole. Um, and I wanted to speak a little bit to, I wanted to bring this up because there's been so much resistance and you talk about this in the book where people are like, this is impossible. You can't reverse Alzheimer's. This is, it's just, It. you've got it, you know, and we'll talk about some of the stories that right, you right. detail where these patients were told like, good luck with that. You know, there's one patient that's like, good. Good luck. You know, see, see you soon. See you next year. So I would love for you, if you can to maybe expand on the, um, I don't know if it's the mindset or the standards in which, you know, we often will say, well, where's the RCT? Oh, we don't have the RCT. So there's no evidence for it. So we're just going to, uh, you know, dismiss it. Um, can you speak a little bit to, why you think your approach has been so successful in the face of maybe more of a traditional allopathic uh, lane where we will see very tight intervention. We're looking for a very specific response and why that hasn't really um, worked out within, in, the, in the realm of Alzheimer's.
0: This is a great point. And this is, the, of course, the crux of the matter. And then we spent 30 years in the laboratory looking at what is driving neurodegenerative disease? What are the molecules? How does it work? And ultimately, how does this whole thing look? What, in other words, I used to ask people at meetings, you know, where, what is Alzheimer's? And I kind of get these bizarre looks. What do you mean what's Alzheimer's? You know, well, how does it work? Why is it so common? Why has it been so hard to treat? And so it really showed us something fundamental. And this is, you know, again, if you're an open-minded, it's very easy to understand, which is that if you're trying to treat an illness, then you need to understand what's driving the illness. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. And so in the case of Alzheimer's, it turned out that this is basically a region of your brain it, it is a, a a network in your brain that is not functioning correctly it's not a simple problem like you don't have enough vitamin c it's a complex problem this network has a whole bunch of things you know it needs the appropriate brain derived neurotrophic factor and by the way it needs the appropriate estradiol testosterone vitamin d There's a whole set of things. And so we initially identified 36 things there. We know a few more now. The good news is it's not millions, it's dozens. You need to look at those things. So we want to go after those. Now, why did we not do an RCT? We actually started with an RCT 2011, and we were turned down by multiple IRBs that said, we will not allow you, this is, you know, Human Subjects Committee, We will not allow you to do this trial because you're trying to do a multivariable trial. And that's not the way trials work. We said, yeah, but that's the way this disease works. So again, we're kind of having to change everything because we're starting with the lab result And we're saying, how can we take what we found in the test tube and now translate that to best outcomes for humans? Well, it turns out it changes everything as we just talked about. It it tells you come in early, come in for prevention. It says, look at a much larger data set. Look at all the things that are driving the process. The standard of care was completely different. Said, wait as long as you can because there's nothing that can be done. Come in when you're really ill. Get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's because we don't think about things like SCI. Get on a prescription, one thing that doesn't right. help. So we have to kind of, that's 20th century medicine. We got to move that aside and now look at this. We're, now we're saying, which is kind again, kind of obvious if you look at it, come in as early as possible, just as you do with other complex chronic illnesses like cardiovascular disease and cancer. As you know, the problem with these complex chronic illnesses that are killing us today is that they don't become significantly symptomatic until late in the course of the disease. When you have that first heart attack, you've had cardiovascular disease for quite a while. When you have metastatic cancer, you've had a tumor for years. And these are all well-documented. And so all we're saying is, the same thing is true about cognitive decline, please get in for prevention or early reversal. Don't wait until you're really late because we can do a lot more. So now we, so we had to work up to the RCT. First thing we did, again, obvious, we published anecdotes. We had here and then, but that's what this book is about. Seven people who actually did very well. And their stories are, are so beautiful that I really wanted to This book was kind of a labor of love. I really wanted to get this out there to have people see this. In fact, the the, uh, the publisher who did the first two books really wasn't interested in doing this book. Uh, and uh, so I said, look, let's just get this out, the stories, because it's wonderful to hear these people's stories and what they went through and, and how this really changed their family lives and things like that. So now we've done the anecdotes. We published 100 documented improvements in 2018. We finally, we got turned down again, amazingly, to do a trial in 2018. So 2011, 2018, we were turned down. Finally, in 2019, they said, well, you can do it, you can't do an RCT yet, but you can do an observational trial. So, okay, fine. So we did what's essentially a proof of concept trial. 25 people, 84% of them got better. Uh, and we published that. We actually put we, we posted that. So it's now in, we're still working on getting it published. Again, we're, you know, we're getting it reviewed by our peers. But of course, the peers are often not interested in hearing that there's something that can be done. Now, I understand fully if you're working for a pharmaceutical company, of course, of course, the goal is to make a profit. So you want to go after that one piece. And I do think in the long run, the drugs are going to be very helpful as part of an overall plan. So you'll have this protocol that's personalized to your factors that are driving the problem, and then you'll be really good at patching a couple of those holes with drugs, which are very good patches, but for one hole at a time. So I do think that's the future. But the problem is it's been so polarized, people have said, no, you have to do a drug or you have to do a protocol. They don't. They, they haven't uh, kind of gotten these together. So as we all know, thesis, antithesis gives rise to synthesis. So I look forward to a Hegelian future of synthesis Um, as we all kind of realize that you put these things together for best outcomes. It's interesting. I just yesterday got the first request to speak to a more academic group. I mean, I've been all my old friends and colleagues won't even talk to me because I'm saying that the work they did their whole lives is wrong. I'm sorry. That's what the laboratory work shows. Um, I was invited to a university about two years ago, and then I got another res- another response that said, um, "You know, there's some th- there's been a lot of pushback here at the university." And so I just said, "Look, forget it. I'm not interested. In, I don't care. Uh, I really don't care about flying you know, to, to your state anyway." <laughs> and so you know, it'll come at some point. Uh, data will win out. And you know, it's, it, it, the funny thing is, I went into academics because I felt that it was the most open-minded. It was the place where data and truth went out. And unfortunately, you know, in the field of Alzheimer's, there are you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in pharmaceuticals. And so um, things get really colored by politics. They get really colored by finance. Um, the Alzheimer's Association, of course, went on record as saying uh, canumab, uh, which has been such a disaster that some people have taken to calling it Afghanistanumab, um, is, which has been a you know a really uh, you know not very helpful drug, um, but they were paid by the drug company 1.4 million dollars. So no surprise, um, you know they came to the conclusion that it was a good drug. What a surprise! Um, and the same company that developed the drug, you know, paid multiple other groups that no surprise came out and said it's a good drug. Well, so hopefully in the long run. Uh, truth and data will win out. Um, but as I like to say, um, the only ones uh, who are surprised that truth is powerless uh, next to politics and finance uh, are the powerless ourselves. Um, so everybody else knows it's all about the money. It's all about the You know, it's all about the politics. It's all about your reputation, all that. So, you know, this this is I'm an old person now, I'm about to turn 70, so this is not gonna be accepted during my lifetime, but it will be, you know, this is what our research showed over the years, um, and it will be accepted at some point. And hallelujah, if someone comes up with a single pill that addresses all of these things, I will be very excited about that. But so far, the data and the science suggests, the research suggests that you have to look at the things that are actually driving. So we have to go from, it's, you know, it's interesting. We were taught in medical school, diagnosis, prescription, or surgery. We have to change that fundamentally to what's the network that is dysfunctioning because that's where complex illnesses arise. What's the network dysfunction? And then personalized protocol. It's a fundamentally different way to do, to practice medicine to evaluate and to treat. And that's where we're headed. So that's why we need larger data sets. That's why we need more computation involved. You know, Google knows where you shop. Google knows where I shop. We need to use the same sorts of larger data sets um, to get in and to look to see why each person is ill.
1: Yeah. And 84% better. I mean, that's That's hard to ignore. I mean, that's, you know, for most, you know, most trials, it's did they did we slow down the decline not did we not did we get better and 84 percent of your uh of your n of your of your subjects got better which i think is incredible and i i agree with you i think that the pursuit of the scientific method in its purest form absence of politics absence of you know profit absence of financial gain i think is really why i got into healthcare as well it was why it was i mean i think why i think most people get into healthcare. They want to better the human, you know, human advancement and human optimization. And you know, as you were, you, you talk about this in the book about the medical revolution being sort of the you know the bloodiest uh, revolution in human history, more than you know maybe the Stalin regime, more than the Nazi, the French Revolution, all the revolutions. Um, and I I I too hold the hope that there can be a beautiful marriage, a coming together of where we see laying these foundational basics of nutrition and movement and toxins. We're going to get into the physiology in just a moment, but marriage. That with some type of uh, pharmaceutical intervention that helps to, uh, you know, advance that particular patient's needs, because as you said, it's a network. It's not one thing. It's not one thing that causes Alzheimer's. It's many different things. And, you know, the stories that you talk about in the book, most of them have more than one. It's usually not, oh, they were exposed to mold. And that was, it was mold and glycotoxic and, you know, cold or something. And we'll we'll, we'll explain what those are in a moment.
0: I should add, you know, you mentioned 84% got better. Here's something that's even more remarkable. Their MRIs got better. I mean, that was the surprise. So you can't fake an MRI. So all of us, if we're normal aging, your hippocampal volume does go down very slightly each year. Your gray matter volume does go down as you age slightly each year. So that's mild. If you have Alzheimer's or MCI, it goes down more rapidly. In this trial, gray matter volume for people who actually had Alzheimer's or MCI actually went up. That's unheard of the hippocampal volume did go down slightly, but it went down less than normal aging. So you can see that, in fact, this is not something you can fake. These people actually had improved MRIs in association with their improved cognition. And you also mentioned the the medical revolution. And I think this is something most people um, are not aware of. There is this revolution going on and people are changing over from, you know, simple prescriptive bad medicine, to more precision medicine, protocol-based medicine. And the sad thing is that it's not being taught in medical schools yet. And therefore, there are people dying left and right who are needlessly dying, including people with things like Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Our own daughter developed lupus and we took her to two world experts, and I mentioned this in the book. And they both said, yeah, she's got early lupus, we'll give her steroids when she gets worse. We then took her to a functional medicine physician who said, I know exactly why she has lupus. And she had a very, very leaky gut when she healed that her lupus got better and it has stayed better except when she cheats and ends up, you know, getting back the same sort of response once again. So, you know, it's it's unfortunate that so many people have to die as this revolution goes on.
1: Yeah. So. We have implicit and explicit biases in medicine. I mean, that's, nice. you know, something that's been going on for a while. But I, what I want, what I would like to move into is some of the intricacies in terms of the physiology of Alzheimer's. We've said it's sort of multivariant, multifactorial. It's not this one little string in the spider web, Right. And I would, you know, we've had you on the podcast before, so we'll make sure that we link out for people in the show notes. We go into so much complex detail in, in our past conversations, but just as a refresher, um, let's start, let's start with amyloid precursor protein or APP and why this is, um, a critical step, if you will, in the in the physiological uh, decision-making tree uh, for the advancement of Alzheimer's. What's going on with APP and why is that important?
0: It's a great point. And certainly you can have degenerative disease without APP, but it turns out that it is a very interesting central point because it is the parent of the amyloid that collects early in Alzheimer's and in fact people will collect this for, again for years ahead of a diagnosis so if you look at it, and we studied the signaling mo- of this molecule APP which sits in your neurons and it, to a lesser extent in other cells but especially at synapses so you have this you have your membrane and this thing sticks mostly outside of the membrane and a little bit inside the membrane and it is literally sampling it is a molecular switch. It is sampling what's going on. And so again, very much like a company or even a country. If you're the head of a country, if you're the president of my brainistan, then you've got, you know, things are good. You're gonna say, okay, grow. You're gonna say, you know, let's make new bridges. Let's make new highways. Let's make new partnerships with other countries. Let's support them. It's a growth and maintenance mode. The same person, the head of your country, when things are bad, when you have invaders, when you have pollution, when you have inflation, when you have all these problems, and these are the same things that your brain has, it gets invaded, it changes its microbiome, it gets inflation, which in this case is insulin resistance. It gets the same sort of changes, pollution, toxins. So it gets the same and what does it do? It does the same thing your country does. It says, we're gonna go into a protective downsizing mode. And of course we did this with COVID-19 and of course for perspective about a hundred times as many people will die of Alzheimer's of the currently living Americans than have died from COVID-19. So it's a much larger pandemic Alzheimer's. So what happens is you go into this this protective downsizing mode in which your APP switches from signaling growth, where it makes these two nice peptides, SAPP alpha, alpha CTF, one for outside the cell, one for inside the cell. It switches over to a mode where it makes four, two for outside, two for inside, that tells everybody things are bad, we gotta pull back. And just as we went into a recession because of COVID-19, your brain goes into a recession when it has these various Uh, you know, various insults, and that is what we call Alzheimer's. And interestingly, that plaque that we see, that amyloid that we see, is a protective response, unfortunately a protective downsizing response. And if you look at these various organisms, they are encased in that amyloid. So you actually use this as a way to surround and, and render non-toxic these various organisms whether it's herpes simplex from your lip whether it's p gingivalis from your oral microbiome whether it's various mold species from your sinuses whether it's tick-borne illnesses from your blood you just go right down the list they get they get surrounded by the amyloid and as has been pointed out the a beta itself is part of the innate immune system. So it's interesting, we die of cytokine storm when we have COVID-19. When we have Alzheimer's, the same process happens, but more slowly, we die of cytokine drizzle. And so you've got this slow release, and in fact, the amyloid just keeps you, keep making. and as long as you've got that exposure to the insults, you're gonna keep on making this stuff, it's gonna keep on down. Imagine what would have happened if, they, they just said, look, COVID-19 is here. We're just going to downsize. Don't anyone ever go to work again. Things would have fallen apart. Now, to be fair, we started to come out of it and then Delta appeared. And so we kind of had to go back in. We've had a hiccup there. But we've got now vaccines. We've got some fairly decent approaches to antivirals. People are developing better antivirals. We have monoclonal antibodies that can be helpful. We have all sorts of protective wear that can be helpful. People have changed a lot. To be able to deal with that pandemic we need to do the same thing to deal with the alzheimer's pandemic because what's happening is you're just making that amyloid you're doing the downsizing and until you find out why you're downsizing and address those things you will continue to downsize
1: sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance the regulation of fluid and electrolytes and your blood pressure no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima, that's D-R-I-N-K, elementt.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A, and you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Yeah, and it was interesting in the book, you were drawing a lot of parallels between COVID-19 and Alzheimer's, and you would you know, sort of on the surface, they seem relatively unrelated to each other. But oh. when you kind of look at some of the pathophysiology, and we'll get into some of the classifications in a moment, but maybe you can, um, you know, briefly outline how these two things that don't really seem like one's viral, and then we have this sort of multifactorial Um, process, how these two are related to each other. You said the cytokine storm, you know, in the case of the immune system reaction to the virus and then this cytokine drizzle, what are some other overlaps that we see between these two? I know metabolic health has been, I know no one likes to hear it, but like metabolic health is a really big part of, you know, comorbidities and your prognosis with COVID. Are there other things that, that are, that will determine prognosis in, in both cases? Are there overlaps?
0: Absolutely, a whole host of them. And as you said, one's a virus. We know what it is. We've got sequence, et cetera. The other one is a network dysfunction from viruses and bacteria and spirochetes and fungi and vitamin deficiencies and toxins and hormonal changes. So they're fundamentally different there. But guess what? They both end up where the bad news is that your innate system is on, is active beyond your adaptive system. So in COVID, your adaptive system is not clearing this. And it's interesting. The very interesting article recently on the molecular mechanistics of the, co- of the SARS-CoV-2. And one of the things it does is shut down your body's ability to respond immunologically to it. So what happens is you don't respond, you don't respond, you don't respond, and then finally, whoa, you've got this huge viral load and you get cytokine storm and die, that's the problem. With Alzheimer's, what happens is that you get, again, you get the innate system active and the adaptive system is not good enough to clear the various insults that you have. Therefore, you will die of COVID or you're high risk for dying if you are older age, if you are low vitamin D, low zinc, ApoE4 positive, obesity, hypertension, insulin resistance, right down the list. Every one of those is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. So you can almost put them on top of each other. Yes, there are a few differences, but to a large extent, this is when you are metabolically poorly resilient, you have this propensity For the innate system to have inflammation rather than functional adaptive response, you die of COVID or you die of Alzheimer's. So there are indeed a lot of parallels.
1: Yeah. And we don't, uh, there seems to be a a lot of resistance to this message. There's been a lot of doctors uh, kind of from the beginning talking about the importance of metabolic health in the prognosis of whether it's COVID or Alzheimer's. I mean, obviously in the past 18 months, everyone's focused really uh, quite intensely on, on COVID, but that is, that is the, what you're talking about, this innate immune system, this, you know, uh, this you uh, or this, um, you know, this balance of the stress, right? The balances of the stress. If we are always inflamed, if we always have this chronic low grade inflammation, you're draining your resources from your immune system's ability to detect and destroy and, and, and regulate. And I think that, um, uh, I mean, I think it needs to be said, we, as North, like North Americans, the U S in particular, most people have died from COVID and it's, it's not because it's, I mean, there's different variants, but I think that the population as a whole is sicker, uh, in terms of our metabolic, um, in terms of our metabolism. And I read a stat the other day, I think it was 88% of North Americans. And I'm including Canada in that because Canadians tend to think that we're better than Americans, but we're the same, the same, same data. Uh, 88% of North Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So that means only 12% of us are, you know, metabolically healthy. And of course, that's a huge risk factor for Alzheimer's as well.
0: Yeah. And my friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Lustig, you probably know, wrote Metabolical yes. yep. and talked about how we are in poor metabolic health and why we are in poor metabolic health. And unfortunately it is driving obesity. It's driving type two diabetes. It's driving dementia. It's driving renal failure. It's driving, you know, on and on increasing cancers, you know, on and on because of this. So, you know, this is a critical point to get this appropriate metabolic health to get your resilience. And you know, the term inflammaging. So you age worse and more rapidly if you have ongoing inflammation. Now, the problem is, People have recognized that they've taken the first step, which is to recognize inflammation is critical for aging. They haven't yet taken the second step, which is to say, instead of just trying to stop the inflammation, let's find out for each person what's causing it. For some people, it will be a leaky gut. For some people, it will be oral microbiome changes. For others, it will be, you know, metabolic syndrome, the food you're eating, you know, what have you, processed food, on and on. So for each person, you need to identify it. Resolve it and then prevent further inflammation. And you will do better with your longevity, with your neurodegeneration and on and on.
1: So let's, let's start wading a little deeper into the, into the waters of Alzheimer's and let's yeah. break down some of the categories. You talk about these, uh, in your previous books as well. Um, but let's review them in terms. And then we can talk about some of the mechani- like the abnormalities and mechanistic function with energetics and insulin sensitivity. But, uh, let's talk about the different types, the different categories of Alzheimer's and what are some of the, um, contributing factors to, to them.
0: Yeah. So again, you know, imagine your brain as a country. You've got to have certain things. You've got to have support for it. And you've got to have, you know, you're not demanding too much. You, know, you can't have war. You can't fight wars 24-7 for hundreds of years. I mean, you know, Louis XIV fought so many wars and spent so much money that Louis XVI got his head cut off for it. So you know, you've, got to, you've got to not have too much of this. So the bottom line here is that you have a situation where some people, it's inflammation, which is the main driver. We call that type one or inflammatory Alzheimer's. For some people, it's just the opposite. It's not that they have too much inflammation, but it's that they're producing too much support for the synapses. So that's what we call type two or atrophic Alzheimer's. Then type 1.5, because it has a little of both, is glycotoxic. You've got the inflammation because you have the non-enzymatic glycation of hundreds of proteins. We measure it as hemoglobin A1C, but it affects hundreds of proteins. But you've also got the atrophic part because you have insulin resistance. Your insulin is no longer getting the signaling that it did before. And so you've got the worst of both worlds. And since we have over 80 million Americans who are insulin resistant, they are at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease because of that resistance. So that's type 1, 1 1.52. Type 3 is toxic. And those are three different types of toxins, inorganics. um, Air pollution has been the big one. And here in California, we've got all sorts of fires and that, that increases our risk for Alzheimer's disease. Number two is the organics, things like formaldehyde and toluene and benzene and glyphosate and things like that. And then number three is mycotoxins and other biotoxins. So trichothecines uh, and ochratoxin A and those. So that's type three or toxic Alzheimer's, which is a tough one and often presents quite differently in the symptoms than the others. And then type four is vascular. There are some people where the main problem is you're just not supporting the brain because of vascular flow. Uh, and then number five, type five is traumatic. So you can see, you know, people need that, energy. they need the energetics, they need the trophic support, they can't have too much of the inflammation and they can't have too much of the toxicity. Those are big four. And we break them down into these different subtypes because then we can understand a little bit better what's driving it. Then we ultimately want to find out how much of this is vitamin D related? How much of this is estradiol related? How much of this is testosterone related? Just go right down the list so that you can now get an idea just like figuring out why the orchestra is not playing well. Um, just saying, well, you just give us one instrument and then let's assume that that's the orchestra. It doesn't work that way. You got to get the whole orchestra playing well.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is so important to understand because This is a very sophisticated disease that takes, you know, as we were talking about at the outset, you know, we have these four Mm -hmm. stages, starts in your 30s or your 40s, and then we start to see this over many decades. It's not as simple anymore as here's the bacterial infection. Here's the antibiotic, right? It's, right. there's lots of different ways that this can happen. And it's a slow, it's a drizzle. I love that word. It's like a drizzle, as you said, in terms of the cytokines, yeah. but that progr- that progress is also um, drizzle as well. Yes. Yeah. So let's, um, when we're thinking about healing from Alzheimer's, yeah. um, In your, in, in your book, you had a chapter called the quantified self and you identified sort of a hierarchy of priorities to address. And we won't go through all of them, but man, this is such an excellent, I loved this chapter. Uh, You started off with energetics and really when you boil it down, Alzheimer's is you know, chronic or repeated uh, insults and energetic and or energetic uh, insufficiency, and in some cases, it's the availability of the substrate to the brain and the brain, like the cells in the brain, the neurons, their ability to take that substrate and efficiently use it to produce ATP. So, walk us through. Um, what happens in the Alzheimer's brain and then how we can begin to bridge that energy gap for uh, for, better, for better ATP and energy production.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, and the key here is Alzheimer's at its most fundamental nature is an insufficiency. It's not a simple insufficiency like vitamin C and scurvy. It's an insufficiency of a neuroplasticity network. And you're addressing this by drinking some water. That's fantastic. Right. You know, you're, you're addressing part of the insufficiency here. You're getting better flow, et cetera. So all these things are critical. And I do think wearables are fantastic because look at this. We're now able to address the energetics We're able to address the very things, the inflammation. It's so great. We can now measure things like our heart rate variability and see how much stress we have. And I noticed when I started measuring mine, the huge differences when I would do breathing before it versus not doing it. Um, And we're able to measure our ketones. We're able to measure, you know, continuous glucose monitoring. People find all the time that they plummet when they go to sleep at night horrible for your brain so you're right we start with the 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 big four energetics is number one and that's four basic things it's do you have enough blood flow to your brain to get there and you can you can look at you can actually look at things like intimal thickness and things like that so again you can get good ideas about how you're how you're doing with your vascular tree you got to get the blood flow and again this is why things like exercise so helpful and this is why I worry about people overcontrolling their blood pressure. When someone has hypertension, the question should not be, you know, what kind of antihypertensive should I, should I prescribe you? The question is, why did you get hypertension? What's going wrong here? Let's address those things. And we find when people go on this protocol that we developed, usually they are able to come off, or often I should say, they're able to come off their antihypertensive, their statins, and their anti-diabetes drugs because they're doing the right thing, of course. Second thing is you need oxygenation. And so many people have cognitive decline because they have nocturnal hypoxemia. They have it from sleep apnea, which is the common one. They could have it from upper airway resistance syndrome, which by the way, also increases your adrenaline. So it's a real disaster. They could have it from other things as well. But so you wanna know, so it's critical to find out, are people dropping their oxygenation at night? And then of course, are they dropping their glucose at night? Very common as well. Third thing you have to have is you have to have mitochondrial function. If you don't have the batteries there, then you're not. You can deliver anything you want. You got to have the batteries then to make things go. And then lastly, you've got to have the fuel. So the batteries got to have their power. Right, And so uh, that really boils down to ketones, which is why ketosis is so helpful in this disease. And in a perfect scenario, you have metabolic flexibility. You burn glucose, you burn ketones. You burn glucose, you burn ketones. People with Alzheimer's have lost both of those. They have the worst situation. They're not adapted to ketones because they haven't been doing appropriate fasting. So they can't make or use ketones. And then secondly, they are not able to use glucose appropriately because they have insulin resistance. So they are literally starving their brains. And you can see it. If you do a PET scan, what do you see? You see reduction of glucose utilization by the temporal and parietal regions. So it's just showing you, and by the way, with people who are ApoE4 positive, You can see those changes, late 20s, early 30s, long before you ever have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So you're absolutely right. Energetic's huge. So is trophic activity. So is reducing inflammation. So is reducing toxicity. And the great thing, the thing I love about these wearables, you can see this coming. This is another amazing thing about chronic complex illnesses. You can see them coming for years before you get the illness, if you just bother to look. One of the guys wrote, who's who's on the protocol, wrote me the other day and he said, well, when I started, he said, you know, you're telling me, wait, you're telling me my HOMA IR is too high? He said, well, you know, I have a glucose that runs, yeah, it runs around 100, and you know my, yeah, my insulin is doing pretty well. It's about you know 10. Well, like, yeah, you have insulin resistance. Your body is fighting to try to keep that glucose down where it should be. And in the long run, of course, you are putting yourself at greater risk for Alzheimer's. The fact that you don't have it yet is just telling you that you started early enough. Thank you. Let's get you so you're in an optimal range. So again, CGM, we can now look at our telomerase. We can look at our gut microbiome. We can look at our oral microbiome. You know, again, heart rate variability, asleep at night, oximeters. I mean, it's fantastic what we have access to so that we can really do much better. And hopefully our physicians will start doing better at working with us on these wearables and and they can now gather data at, at distance to help us out. So optimizing our health has not been done nearly enough. And of course, way back when I was in medical school, we were not trained to do any of these things. So I do think that wearables are going to be a major help in reducing the global burden of dementia.
1: Yeah, and I I can tell you I wear my or a ring um and when I look at my if I eat too late in the evening, my HRV, it's like it, it tanks. Same what? thing with my body temperature, you know, if I I mean my there's cyclical, you know, for a woman there's like cyclical what? body temperature fluctuations, but for the most part I notice that when I eat too close to bedtime, if I don't give myself that 3 to 4 hours before going to sleep, my HRV is awful. And oxygen, I'm so happy that you talked about oxygen saturation. These are, I mean, I had a, when I was in uh, physical practice, I had, you know, I can't remember the name of it now. It was super expensive. It was yellow and black. I forget the name of it, but you can get an oxygen sat. Like you can just pick one up on Amazon. They're like 10 bucks, you know, like they're not that expensive. So these are, in some cases, the aura Ring is, you know, maybe for some people like cost might be prohibitive, but an oxygen saturation, uh, I, I think you can buy them for like 10, 15 bucks, something like that on, on Amazon, they're very inexpensive. And, um, you know, to your point around, uh, you know, your patient with the insulin of 10, gosh, like that's, that's, I mean, even though tech, I mean, I would not consider a hundred, uh, for blood glucose normal, that's, that's high by my standards, but it's still considered within the realm of, you know, people will still call that, you know, normal, but yeah. a 10 insulin, like your pancreas is working like a mother to keep that, to keep that insulin in that sort of euglycemic range. Um, so I agree with you, you can see it coming for years and that's actually, you know, the next point is insulin resistance. And that's, you know, what that sort of increased output of the pancreas, even when you have a euglycemic blood range is still is one of the earlier signs, um, of insulin Absolutely. resistance. Yeah. So, um and for me, it you know, from my understanding, insulin resistance very complex topic uh, in and of itself. But often for uh for most patients, it looks like insulin resistance starts in the muscle. So, with exercise, weightlifting, you know, even just walk, even just walking, you know, talking about oxygen saturation, just go for a walk after dinner. You'll, you know, increase your oxygen, like blood flow and like you get the glucose into the muscles, um, really, really profound and relatively cheap way to, to keep these, these parameters in, um, in range. Um, but as it relates to, uh, insulin, insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, why is this, you know, you touched on a little bit, but why is it important in the context of, of brain health?
0: Yeah. Great point. Um, for, and for, there are a number of mechanisms. So first of all, insulin actually is one of the most important trophic factors in your brain. So for example, when we used to grow, grow brain cells in a dish, uh, we we have always had to include insulin transferrin and selenium in there in the, the medium to keep them surviving. So it binds to its receptor. And, and by the way, you can actually see changes in the receptor signaling through a molecule called IRS-1 that has a difference in its phosphorylation pattern if you're insulin sensitive versus insulin resistant. And that's been well documented. And actually, Professor Ed Gessel, beautiful work showing that with Alzheimer's, you see this tip toward insulin resistance in these brain, in these neural uh, so-called exosomes so that you can really see changes in the brain, really striking, showing that there is insulin resistance in the brain. So the the number one, it makes it so that that the insulin is no longer functioning as effectively as a trophic support. Number two, you now have hyperglycemia, which has multiple problems where that you now have uh, the non-enzymatic glycation. So you have more inflammation. You now have bigger swings. So you now go from hyperglycemia to hypoglycemia. And we hear this all the time where people will eat late in the day. They'll often have too many carbs. They go to bed, and then they wake up in the middle of the night, and they don't know what's waking them up until, once again, a wearable. They do CGM, and they find out that their glucose went from 120 down to 45, and they woke up in the middle of the night. So both the hyperglycemia, bad for your brain, and the hypoglycemia are bad for your brain. So by multiple mechanisms, this insulin resistance is actually a critical and incredibly common contributor to let's call it suboptimal cognition, whether you go on to have Alzheimer's or not, you're making your cognition suboptimal.
1: And in the book, um, you talk about inflammation, you talk about detoxification. Um, Which you have, I mean, there's so much information that you put here. We don't have the time to go over it. And I highly, highly recommend uh, any, everybody should be picking up this book. Um, But I was, I was speaking recently to uh, Dominic D'Agostino. We were talking about exogenous ketone supplementation, and he mentioned that you have really been uh, instrumental in his thinking around exogenous ketone supplementation and wanted your thoughts on their role as we're talking about insulin sensitivity and the inability Ability now for, you know, our neuronal cells to uptake this glucose potentially. Um, and how, how do exogenous ketones play into that? When we, you know, you mentioned before that Alzheimer's patients have lost both the ability to take glucose and potentially yeah. also ketone bodies up. Do, does that play a role in terms of therapeutics?
0: Great point. And, and, and this also came from Stephen Kinane who did beautiful work showing that you can bridge that capsule. Again, You see someone who's already having some cognitive issues wherever they sit. Their PET scans are showing you they're not utilizing glucose well, and usually they're not very good at utilizing ketones either. So again, it's the worst of both worlds. So I consider this a metabolic emergency. They are not giving their brain the amount of energy support that it needs. So we gotta fix both things. We wanna return them to insulin sensitivity and we wanna return them to metabolic flexibility so that they can also use ketones. Now, the problem is on day one, it's gonna take a few weeks to make them insulin sensitive. And as you know, exercise is a critical piece of getting people insulin sensitive, of course, diet, huge piece, and of course, sleep and stress. These are all critical pieces of making them insulin sensitive again. You gotta ease them into it. During that time, their brain is dying. So what we do then is you bridge the gap on day one by using exogenous ketones. You can use NCT oil, you can use uh, uh, ketone salts, ketone esters, you can use coconut oil. You have to recognize, yes, in the long run, you're gonna want to use endogenous ketosis, but you don't wanna wait that long. So just help at the beginning. And as, as Dr. Kinane has shown over the years, you can bridge that gap by getting yourself into ketosis or even by taking exogenous ketones. So what we say is essentially it's a three-step process. Step one, bridge the gap with some ketones. Just get it there. Make your brain say, that feels much better. You know, I was dying here, not getting enough support. Step two is let's get some insulin sensitivity. So it can now also begin to use glucose better. And then step three, over months, you can now drive yourself into endogenous ketosis and metabolic flexibility. Now you've got the best of both worlds. You can use the glucose. And I know that, you know, the of Dean Shurzai and Aisha Shurzai have pointed out appropriately, the brain likes glucose. Fair enough. The problem is you've got a state now where you've driven your brain into an insufficiency through overfeeding. That's the the paradox. It's excess led to insufficiency because now you can't use the glucose and you're not producing the ketones. So we want to restore that. So this is why I worry about people who, when they have very low BMIs and they say, okay, I'm just going to start to do big fasts. No, they often go backwards when they do that. You really want to add, but these people often, many people will already have some degree of excess fat. So for those people, they actually are often easier to help because they can generate the ketones more easily. So, but the the bottom line here is you're in an energetic emergency. It's insufficient and you need to get that. Now, if you also have mold and other things, you gotta deal with that ultimately as well. But step one is make sure that you're able to get enough energetic support for your synapses and neurons.
1: Well said. I want to talk a little bit about some of the stories I was telling you in the pre-chat. I just yeah. was so, uh, I fell in love with Kristen, with Patient Zero, her story. I, my heart was breaking in the beginning and then her whole story was so hopeful. And I part of the reason why I think this book is so important is um you know, we, you talk about a lot, you, you, you talk about all of these different remedies and, you know, this, this, you know, panacea of, you know, nootropics and stacks, and here's how you detox and here's the inflammation and here's the labs you should get. But then there's also this through line of hope, which, you know, we, we started off talking at the top of uh, this conversation that, you know, there's never really been, you know, we, we all know cancer survivors. There's never, we've never really known Alzheimer's survivors. And you know, the title of your book, the first survivors of Alzheimer's, I think is so powerful. And these stories are so hopeful. So I thought if we could talk about Kristen, who I know has now, that was a pseudonym. Uh, so yeah. she's, she, her name, her real name is Judy, but let's talk a little bit about, uh, her story. Uh, and you know, your, even your interaction with her, because she was your first patient was she not back in 2011?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. In, yeah and so in 2011 was when we proposed the trial and we got turned down, we couldn't do a trial. And I, I actually got a very nasty call from a guy who had supported Uh, that had supported our development to get to this trial. And he said, you know, if you were working for me, I would fire you (laughs) because, you know, you should have gotten this trial approved. They said like, okay, I'm sorry, this is the way uh, IRBs work. And I was very depressed about this. And shortly thereafter, April of 2012, I got a call um, from a woman who lived in San Francisco, who said my friend who's back on the East coast um, has just been told she has Alzheimer's disease. I know you guys are doing some research with mice and things like that, Um, and I know you tried to do a trial, but you got turned down for your trial. Would you at least talk to her? And I said, well, look, I mean, you know, we got turned on for the trial, so I can't get her into the trial. There is no trial, but I'm happy to talk to her if you want to have her come out from the East Coast. And so sure enough, she ended up coming out. I hadn't seen a patient in 20 years. I've been working with mice and fruit flies and cells and things like that. So she came to to my office at the Buck Institute, as she describes, and we went two and a half hours going over all the stuff. And she was writing things down because she couldn't remember much. Um, She had been told she'd watched her mother die of Alzheimer's. Um, And she'd been told she had the same thing. It was still relatively early on. She was having trouble, all sorts of trouble. She would get lost. She would, she couldn't do her job anymore. She couldn't remember things. She would call her pets by the wrong names, all these sorts of things.
1: She said in the book that she took a nap. This, I I couldn't believe she was flying somewhere, took a nap on the plane. She woke up from the nap. She had no idea where she was going. Where she was flying, who yeah. she was meeting. So she, la- I think, it was Dallas. She might have been flying to Dallas, and yeah. then she lands in Dallas and is like, "Well, I don't know why I'm here," and then literally just takes the next flight back home.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's how bad things had gotten, and she had already decided that she was not going to allow herself to go through what she watched her mother go through, and so she had decided she was going to commit suicide. And she talks a little bit about that in her chapter. She was saving up pills for the day when things weren't, you know, weren't so good. Uh, and so um, so we went over this and, and um, went, you know, we, we talked about the different pieces, just as you and I have talked about here. And I said, look, you know, uh, we, we haven't done this. We, this has been in mice. We were going to do a trial. It hasn't happened. Take this back to your doctor. I frankly never thought I would hear from her again. Um, Take this back to your doctor. Give it a try. And, you know, if it helps, great. Um, but it, the, luckily for all of us, she was very determined she said, I'm doing this. She, you know, and, and the people who do the best are often diligent and detail-oriented, and they often will work with a spouse or a health coach and that sort of thing. And they often like, okay, I'm going to get myself into ketosis. I'm going to do these things. So she went back, and I didn't hear from her for three months. And on a Saturday at my home, I got a phone call from her, and she said, I can't believe it. My memory's better than it's been in 20 years. I'm doing great at work, I'm so much better, and she remains better now. It's interesting, four times, as I mentioned in the book, she's gone off the protocol, and each time it takes about seven to 10 days for her to start to slip again. So you really can see this is a dynamic process. Um, But as long as she's stayed on this, she's done very, very well. Um, She's actually become a yoga instructor, she's become a brain health coach, uh, and she's done very, very well. And she was on a recent Facebook Live with a few of the other survivors talking about what it felt like to get better. Uh, and so, yeah, hats off for all of us um, to Judy for the great work she did, because it really kind of put us on the right track. When I got that call, I hung up the phone and I looked at my wife, who's a who's a functional medicine physician. And I said, it, it worked. Like I, I, all the lab work we've done all the years, it actually was pointing us in the right direction. I uh, was very excited about it.
1: And one of the things that I was I felt so drawn to her story because she was I felt connected to her in that she was very driven, you know, very driven wow. in her career, you know, was traveling and, and she started noticing these changes in her forties. And yeah. she talks about this idea of brain fog. Like I started, and it wasn't all the time. It was sometimes I would get this brain fog and I would feel, you know, foggy and, you know, lack of clarity. And one of the most common things that I hear in my women in perimenopause in their forties and in the late forties into their fifties is this idea of brain fog and that's not to say that all brain fog is Alzheimer's. I'm not trying to, you know, ring the bell there, but I think that it's important to notice that these subtle changes, these changes slowly happen over time. So, um, wanted to point that out. And, um, I know there's seven stories and we, we won't get to all of them, but the other person I wanted to talk about was Deborah, who, yes. uh, her father was a neurologist. Uh, her mother, I think also, uh, was it her mother, her grandmother, Grand, who her
0: father's mother, her, her grandmother.
1: Okay. So she grandmother died, died from Alzheimer's and her father was a very prominent neurologist. Yes. And she describes this, time where her father goes shopping goes out for groceries and doesn't come back you know for hours later so she's frantically driving around town trying to find him and then she sees him they they make their way back home and then they're sitting at the table and her father who is a neurologist a neurologist says you know he's she's like we got to get you help or something and and he, he says there's no help for what i got
0: yeah. you know, She said, we got to get some meal. You know, let's take you in and get some pictures of your brain.
1: Yeah. And he
0: said, what I have, no one can help. And it's sad because he passed away uh, right around the time that she wrote this. Uh, and so it was really, really tough. Uh, at the same time, watching her grandmother and watching her father both pass away and then realizing she herself had the gene and she herself had the early symptoms. And then she actually went in and got tested. And they showed that she wasn't doing that well on her cognitive tests. You know, she looked at her children and thought, oh, my gosh, you know, what's in the future here? And so the whole idea here is let's break this cycle. Let's end it with the current generation. And she has done very well. And now, you know, the reality is this is an option. She, her, her children don't have to get this. Um, she found out that she has, uh, the, you know, the apoe 4 gene, which about 75 million Americans have. Uh, and so let's make sure that none of them uh, ever gets this in the future.
1: And what are some of the other, are, are there, you know, with the pushbacks that you've received as a, as a clinician, yeah. as a researcher, mm-hmm. I would also imagine that these patients, when they start to say, Hey, I, you know, I'm, like maybe something's wrong here. Like, you know, and people might just chuff it up to, Oh, this is just probably normal aging. And yeah. then if they get on your protocol and start feeling better, I think it, I think it would almost be very easy again for, you know, whether it's their peer group or their friends to say, eh, how do you know you're really doing better? Is it just like, isn't it just yeah. like placebo? You know, is there was there pushback or skepticism that uh, some of these patients endured in going through your protocol as well?
0: Absolutely, um, and the and the doctors will often tell them that you know, you, this is this is silly. You know, this is not what's going on. Everybody, one of the things they say is everybody knows there's nothing that can be done for Alzheimer's. If there were something that would be that could be done, it would be on the front page of every newspaper. Well, yeah, I mean, because of the experts claiming this, it's not going to get on the front page. And so as an example, I I wrote to a major medical uh, journal that had published a a pushback, a negative comment on our studies. And I said, fine, I'd like to rebut this if it's okay. And the editor said, no, there's no interest in having you rebut what was was published. So these are very anti-academic, anti-intellectual responses. Um, and they, again, just further show that we're in the midst of this revolution. But, uh, you know, I get it. If you want to continue with fundraising and you want to continue with your reputation, you don't want to be saying, yeah, we were on the wrong track and here's something that's better. Um, in the long run, I think, you know, people will continue. The, the data will accumulate and we'll get to the point now that we've finished the proof of concept trial. We're now in the midst of uh, planning the uh, the RCT uh, the randomized controlled trial. So, you know, step by step by step. But, you know, you look at the history of something as simple as scurvy. Every century, people would find a treatment for scurvy and then the, the doctors would say, no, that that's not really helpful. And they would find it again. and they would say, no, it's not helpful. And it took hundreds of years and lots and lots of people dying before it was accepted that we understand what's going on with scurvy and we can actually do something about it. I mean, look what happened with Semmelweis. Uh, you know, who, who wanted people to prevent infection by washing their hands and was thrown into an insane asylum where he oh, died. Oh, like those little germs, those
1: little germs that are on our oh, hands yeah. and no one can see? You're crazy, yeah. How right. can they be there? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, so this yeah. is the
0: history. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. you know, we don't have, Silicon Valley is all about disruption and rapid change. Medicine is about tradition and permission, understandably, because we don't want to hurt people. It's primum non-noprii. But when you've got something, you know, you've got nothing that helps these various diseases, ALS and you know, Alzheimer's and frontotemporal dementia and Lewy body and all these things, you know, you do have to start looking to see, you know, what can we do that's beyond? I had a, you know, something I actually put in Judy's chapter that, you know, that, that you have to look at changing things. You have to look outside the box, basically. Um, and so, you know, this is what's going to happen with all of these things. And, and we need to be a little more open-minded.
1: Yeah, I, um one of my friends who's very much into, uh, he's into political history often says, you know, if you want to be able to predict the future, you know, you yeah. have to look at the past, right? So to under, yeah. you need to understand your history. And I think this is very true in, in the medical realm where we always see like, there's this advancement, there's this possibility and people will just shut it down because it doesn't, it's not part of the consensus. It's not yeah. part of like the norm, you know, the normative, um, you know, the, the dialogue at the time. And uh, yeah. it takes really disruptors like you to continue to push through uh, with this incredible work for, um, for, you know, to stop really this it's, it's in, in some ways it's tyranny, I, I think.
0: We'll see. Well, you know, again, time will tell. And, you know, as, as we, we just have to continue to document carefully whether people are getting better or worse. And we are seeing situations. One of the things that was most helpful about the trial is that we saw the few people who did not get better, who actually continue to go downhill. You could see why. So as an example, there was one woman who turned out to have very high mycotoxic level. And she was living in a home that was full of mycotoxins. And when they said, OK, we need to get you out of that home. No, I'm not leaving the home. And no, I'm not remediating the home. So no surprise, she didn't get better anyway. All the the mold doctors say the same thing. You're not going to get better until you remove the source. You got to get away from it. So you can see why these people weren't doing as well. And you could also see why the ones we had people going from MoCA scores of 19 to perfect 30s. And you could see that they addressed the critical things that were causing their problems.
1: So we have lots of clinicians that listen uh, to the pod. Uh, of course, we have patients as well. So for the doctors who are listening, who um, you know want to learn more about your protocol so that they can begin to integrate it into their practice, is there information or somewhere that we can direct them? Um, do you have protocols and the, like the Bredesen uh, protocol? Is that still available? Where can people find out more about you and the Recode? Pro- like, is there anywhere that you can help us help me direct? And you? Actually,
0: and you know, we've trained over two thousand physicians from ten different countries and all over the. Year. U.S. Uh, and we have now Recode 2.0 training. So you can either go on ApolloHealthCode.com or you can go on DrBredesen.com, and you can look to see and there, there's there's training there. Um, you can also look at the books, uh, but but lots of ways to to get further access. And of course, this will continue to evolve. We have. We, have, we do have people who are kind of trying to do it partway, and no surprise, it doesn't work as well. There are physicians who are getting the vast majority of their patients to improve. Other physicians who are not getting too many of their patients to improve. Um, it, it's a little bit like a surgical procedure. You know, you have to get some experience with it. You have to understand it. You have to kind of try it and, and make sure that you're doing it optimally.
1: And for patients, where can, uh, is there a, an ongoing, uh, sure. any ongoing trials? Where can we, is it, would it be drdalebredison.com as well? Or drbredesen.com? Uh, you
0: can, yeah. So you can uh, go on Facebook, which is drdalebredesen. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see it on Facebook or you know, Instagram, that sort of thing. Um, you can also go on, uh, the, on drbredison.com for there are, we have guides, um, for people who are doing these protocol. We have, you know, many, many, many pages of guides. Um, Julie G is one of the people who wrote the seven stories. Uh, She's actually the final story. The one who's, who's neurologist when she said, could you just help me to stay where I am? Uh, And he said, good luck with that. Um, Basically had you know, no giving her no hope whatsoever. She went from 35th percentile in her cognitive testing to 98th percentile. She's doing absolutely great. She's over nine years into this now, and she's an APOE 4.4. So the vast majority of people with 4.4 do develop uh, Alzheimer's disease. So she's doing great, and she's um, worked with us and actually written many of these guides from her own experience. So I really encourage people to take a look at those. Uh, And so those are all good places to go.
1: Wonderful. And I just want to salute you uh, and your work. Uh, it's always such a pleasure when I get to speak and geek out with you uh, on the pod for sure. And uh, hopefully in person uh, one day. And I just want to thank you. This has just been an incredible conversation with hope and data and science, which is like the perfect mix of geek and magic. So thank you so much for, for coming out today.
0: Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. Thank for all the great work you're doing, for getting it out there and congratulations and please stay safe. In the midst of this next uh, Delta spike, please stay safe.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right, take care.
1: I hope that this has been an enlightening conversation for you and you now have some... Actionable items in your own life around optimizing your brain health and your brain aging and your brain metabolism. And in leaving you this week, I always like to read out some uh, fan, uh, some reviews that come in. And this one is uh, from the Motherland from Canada, and this is Conti two three three two three three. And the title is Love, Dr. Stephanie. I am a fifty-seven-year-old woman. I am a makeup hair artist, and I've been in the industry for 25 plus years. Unfortunately, I was laid off at the start of the pandemic and have not been back to work, hoping that we will be back in September. The positive of that is that I've had time to take care of myself and I mean really dig deep. I walk at least 10,000 steps a day. I've been intermittent fasting since April and I've lost 20 pounds, 10 of which were added on during COVID and I'm learning a lot listening to podcasts on my walks. Better with Dr. Stephanie is by far my favorite. Yes, some terms go over my head and it's very technical, but I love the conversations and I learn a lot. My favorite podcast so far is her conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig. Wow, I have shared that with many people and I just listened to it again with my husband, which he found very interesting. But I have to say they're all interesting and I love your work and I happy and happy that you are a fellow Torontonian. hashtag four one six. I would love to make an appointment with you someday. So. Thank Thank you so much, Conte. Uh, of course, that is such a wonderful review. I'm so happy to hear some of the positive impacts that this, pos- that this podcast has had on your life around walking 10,000 steps that is awesome and intermittent fasting, lo- losing the 20 pounds. That's absolutely incredible. You should be so proud of yourself and I am thrilled for you. And of course, um, I'm so happy that you're enjoying the work that I'm putting out there. So thank you for the love. I receive it with love and grace as well. And of course, if you are loving this podcast, please leave a review, please leave a rating so that, uh, Apple shows it to more people so that more Bettys can listen and get better as Con as Conte has. And, you know, she's doing her 10,000 steps a day, losing the 20 pounds, living her best life. I want more Bettys, um, to hear this message, uh, as she has. So thank you so much. And until next time, I bid you adieu, dear Bettys. Love you and we'll see you very soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast, And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you.